Welcome. You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. AINC programming is brought to you in part by Weissman Family Dental in Boulder, Colorado. For over 25 years, Weissman Family Dental has been providing high-quality dentistry. They offer regular checkups, emergency care, and a wide range of specialty services. They also have staff that speak Spanish. If you are looking for a new dentist, find them at WeissmanFamilyDental.com or call them at 303-494-0101 and tell them Audio Information Network of Colorado sent you. Thank you for joining us for the Thursday, August 10, 2023 reading of the Boulder Weekly. My name is Eric Levine. News, Boulder Gannick, Passing of a Giant, Louisville Removes a Beloved Tree in Declining Health, by Wilt Matuska, August 10, 2023. South 88th Street in Louisville is no different than the other roads veining through Boulder County. There's a fenced-in prairie stretching to the east. To the west, you can see boulders green mountain and jagged flat irons between trees planted in the road's median. The thoroughfare forms a T with Dillon Road as you round the final curve. But what looms behind the traffic light ahead is a somewhat unexpected character, a lone cottonwood. Camped in the turn lane on 88th, it's easy to anthropomorphize the solemn tree, Straggly branches and leaves become an untamed coiffure, and the changing red and green lights turn into eyes. Planted alongside a busy intersection and near a walking path, residents of Louisville have passed it countless times on their morning commute or after picking up their kids at the nearby Monarch K-8 school. Some in the area have a strong affinity for the tree. Quote, It feels like an old friend with the kind of craggy branches and grumpy old man face, unquote, says Louisville resident Adrienne Gotti. Quote, It just feels like a bit of an icon to Louisville, unquote. <clears throat> After living at the intersection for 60 to 70 years, the city of Louisville removed the cottonwood on August 9 after foresters noticed declining health and rising safety concerns following damage from the Marshall Fire. The city's Facebook announcement that the tree was slated to be cut got the attention of residents, garnering 20 sympathetic comments just days after the posting. Quote, it's a beacon of light in every season, unquote one person wrote in the post's comments, quote, this brings tears to my eyes, unquote, said another. Sherry Summer is one resident who says she will miss the tree. Quote, it's just been the most special tree in Louisville because it's iconic, Summer says. It's so majestic. To me, it's a landmark. It gives us a sense of place in town just to look at it and think, wow, that's something enduring, unquote. The tree survived the Marshall Fire, though not without scars, to become a symbol of community resilience. Goti says the health of the tree was one of the first things she thought of after the fire tore through the area. 
Cottonwoods like this one are hotspots for wildlife. Rabbits and deer feed on the tree's shoots and stems, and it hosts a variety of insects that attract birds and other predators to its branches. A honeybee colony made a home in this particular cottonwood and was relocated prior to the removal process. The city, aware of the community's strong connection with the tree, wrote a heartfelt note to residents informing them of its pending removal. Quote, We understand this may come as a sudden announcement, and we share the sadness many of you may feel at its departure. Unquote. The statement read, According to the city, multiple independent experts assessed the tree's condition and found factors like fire damage, high summer temperatures, moisture loss, cracking in the trunk base, and canopy death have, quote, rendered the tree beyond repair, unquote. Recent rapid decline was also attributed to a burst of growth from the wet spring that the cottonwood couldn't sustain during the summer heat, due to its age and health. As school traffic returns in the next few weeks, city staff were concerned the tree was a safety hazard for cars and pedestrians, especially the children who pass on their way to school. While many comments from Louisville residents about the tree's removal were somber, others brought thoughtful ideas of reusing the tree's wood. Throughout the removal process, the city was, quote, on the lookout, unquote, for pieces of the tree to be saved and repurposed. The city will honor the tree's memory by planting two burr oaks in the area. News. A mixed ruling. Colorado Court of Appeals reverses civil conspiracy claims, affirms others, in anti-SLAPP lawsuit from 2021 City Council elections. It started with leaked screenshots and a fake Twitter account. What followed was a defamation lawsuit filed by former City Council candidate Steve Rosenblum against five political organizers and Boulder Progressives, a local nonprofit that endorses candidates and ballot measures in September 2021. Nearly two years later, on August 3, the Colorado Court of Appeals reversed an order by the Boulder District Court in the lawsuit's claim of civil conspiracy for all defendants, Eric Budd, Katie Farnan, Ryan Welsh, Mark Van Ackeren, Sarah Dawn Haynes, and Boulder Progressives, but affirmed claims against organizer Bud. In addition to the dismissed civil conspiracy charge, the lawsuit accused Bud of misappropriation and defamation prior to the 2021 council elections, which Rosenblum lost by less than one percentage point. Rosenblum argues the opposing political activists attacked his personal reputation, which impacted the outcome of the vote. Lisa Sweeney Moran, a member of Boulder Progressives, calls the appellate court ruling, quote, precedent setting, unquote, because it upholds Colorado's anti-SLAPP slap strategic lawsuits against public participation law. 
passed in 2019. which is designed to protect engagement in government processes in issues of public concern. Quote, We're very glad to see affirmation of free speech and the importance of open and informed elections, she told Boulder Weekly, and we believe very strongly in the importance of making sure that everyone knows who they are voting for and what the values and beliefs of candidates in every election are. We're looking forward to this upcoming election cycle, and we're pleased that the court has affirmed the importance and need of folks engaging in these elections in a meaningful way, unquote. It's an important win for Boulder progressives as the organization leans into the 2023 election cycle that features an open seat for the mayor and four on the Boulder City Council. The main concern in the lawsuit was an anonymous blog called Safer Leaks that used screenshots to call attention to comments made in a Slack group chat by members of Safe Boulder, a grassroots citizens group focused on crime and safety, of which Rosenblum is a member. The comments made disparaging and violent remarks about people experiencing homelessness. Some comments proposed allowing wild animals to attack encampments and using fire hoses or rubber bullets to disperse residents. The Safer Leaks blog also included a link to an anonymous Reddit account containing other alarming remarks about homeless people. While Rosenblum admitted to writing in the Safer Boulder group chat, the district court found he had no connection to the Reddit account and did not make the statements attributed to him. While the majority of the claims in this case have been dismissed, Bud alone still faces the possibility of prosecution for creating a Twitter account under Rosenblum's name, which included links to safer leaks prior to the 2021 election. Judge Fox calls Rosenblum's assertion of misappropriation against Bud a, quote, legally sufficient claim, unquote, because Bud used Rosenblum's name, image, and likeness through the Twitter account, which could benefit Bud by undermining the efforts of a political candidate he opposed. Quote, in creating an impersonation account on Twitter, Bud prevented Rosenblum from using the account name for his own campaign purposes and arguably created the appearance that Rosenblum's campaign endorsed the contents of the Safer Leaks blog, unquote, Fox wrote in the August 3 ruling. <clears throat> to justify the defamation claim, a plaintiff has to provide evidence the defendant acted with, quote, actual malice, unquote, knowledge that what they were doing was false or blatant, quote, disregard, unquote, for the truth. The Court of Appeals found that Rosenblum has a, quote, reasonable likelihood of success, unquote, at trial in regard to the defamation claim because the Twitter account and link were published together, which Fox says creates a false endorsement. Bud may have acted with, quote, actual knowledge, unquote, that it was false. Bud says the Court of Appeals decision was, quote, overall positive, unquote. Quote, 
I think it's important that the Court of Appeals affirmed the right to engage in local elections and free speech, and that I really tried to make sure that all of my actions are always in that vein, Bud says. And so that's my priority in working through these as they go forward, unquote. Rosenblum is free to move forward with the additional claims against Bud in court. News, now you know, August 10, 2023. This week's news in Boulder County and beyond by Will Matuska. Bicyclist dies on diagonal. Our community grieves the tragic loss of Magnus White, a 17-year-old on the U.S. National Cycling Team, who was struck by a driver on the diagonal highway, Colorado 119, while riding his bike. The rising star in off-road cycling won the 2021 USA Cycling National Championship and represented the U.S. in the Cyclocross World Championship last year in Arkansas. The cities of Longmont and Boulder, Boulder County, and the Colorado Department of Transportation are working on plans to pave a separated bikeway on the diagonal to connect Boulder and Longmont. The project is in its final design phase with construction scheduled for 2024. Minimum wage increase in Boulder County. Unincorporated Boulder County will see an increase in minimum wage starting January 1, 2024. The move by Boulder County commissioners will raise the minimum wage to $15.70 per hour in Allens Park, Niwot, Eldora, Cold Creek Canyon, El Dorado Springs, Gold Hill, Gun Barrel, and Hygiene. Colorado's 2023 state minimum wage is $13.35 per hour. Longmont, Louisville, Lafayette, and Boulder are partnering to coordinate minimum wage increases starting January 1, 2025. A vote on occupancy. Boulder City Council will vote on updating the occupancy limit ordinance on August 17. At its June 15 meeting, the council showed support for increasing the occupancy to five unrelated people throughout the city. See News, Now You Should Know, June 22, 2023. The current ordinance allows three unrelated people to live together in low-density zoning districts and four in high-density zones. Raising the limit has been on the table since a ballot initiative failed in 2021. Council will hear public comment prior to the vote. Opinion. Letters. August 10, 2023. By readers like you. Oppenheimer and Witch Hunts. Upon leaving the theater after experiencing the movie Oppenheimer, I thought of two standout individuals from World War II who shortened the war. Alan Turing, who invented the first computer while deciphering the Nazi code, and Robert Oppenheimer, who coordinated the Manhattan Project. They were both heroes who, after the war, had their lives destroyed by uptight conservative blowback. It became a national sickness of obsession with the illusion that there was a communist under every bed. For being gay, Turing eventually committed suicide after the British government chemically castrated him. 
for having the wrong friends before and during World War II, including communists and other, quote, undesirables, unquote, Oppenheimer lost his federal government security clearance after the fact. That serious demotion came during the McCarthy-era witch-hunt lunacy of the early 1950s. It was a time of unbounded madness, in which Oppenheimer was even grilled over his support of anti-fascists fighting in Spain, the Lincoln Brigade. If similar McCarthy-like witch hunts had occurred during the Vietnam era, at least half of us who served in the military would have been jailed or worse for what we believed and who we associated with, dirty hippies, etc. The truth was our military couldn't have done that or they would have found it impossible to have enough soldiers and sailors to conduct an insane war. The parallels between the witch hunts 70 plus years ago and today's witch hunts in Congress, conducted by Jim, G-Y-M, Jordan, and others, is striking and frightening. It makes the Oppenheimer movie a must-see, from Pete Simon in Arvada. The Math of Global Burning We are victims of a conspiracy between the government, corporate media, and the oil and gas industry, Actually, they are all the same single entity. Oil and gas buys the government. Government tells the media what to say and do, and the media advertises the oil and gas as, and does PR for the government. Fifty years ago, after the first Earth Day celebration, gas in the U.S. cost 39 cents a gallon. In Europe, gas was sold by the leader, and it came to about $4 a gallon. In America, the policy was to keep the price low and the consumption high. In Europe, the policy was to keep the price high and the consumption low. During those 50 years, the global population doubled, and now a gallon of gas costs $4 in the U.S. That's the simple math of global burning from Simanta in Boulder. Features the Black Sheep Beekeeper. Local Bee Guardian Bucks Convention on Chemical Free Beekeeping by Caitlin Rocket, August 10, 2023. We're only 10 minutes late, but we feel years behind. A woman is talking about Queen Super Sidur as my friend, and I take as my friend and I take seats in the converted barn at Philanthropies in Longmont. My friend raises an eyebrow at me. A baker's dozen or so of us have gathered over the Easter weekend to hear Corwin Bell teach a two-day intensive on chemical-free top bar beekeeping. It's supposed to be a beginner's class, but many of our classmates have kept bees for years, some professionally. A fellow student admits this is the third time he's taken Bell's class, quote, I had a hive die this winter, so I obviously still have more to learn, unquote, he says. Bell exclusively uses top bar designs, single-story, frameless, horizontal nests where bees build comb that hangs freely from removable bars, instead of the more commonplace Langstroth hives, which stack a colony vertically in multiple boxes using frames with hexagonal pattern foundations, on top of which bees draw out comb. 
Practitioners like Bell, mostly backyard hobbyists, believe top bar is a more sustainable method of beekeeping because it more closely resembles a colony's habit in the wild, like a hole in a tree or a hollowed out log. Of course, not all apiarists agree with this theory, nor do they agree with Bell's adherence to chemical-free practices. That's because nearly 50% of honeybee colonies in the U.S. died last year. This devastation stems from a combination of problems that entomologist Samuel Ramsey calls the three P's, parasites, pesticides, and poor nutrition. Quote, the threshold for honeybee losses each year, the economic injury threshold for a commercial beekeeper is about 8%, unquote, says Ramsey, an, un an associate professor at CU Boulder. Quote, we have been losing between 33% and 52% of our bees every year for more than a decade now. Monoculture farming and large-scale agricultural pesticide use make bee colonies extra vulnerable to their most dastardly foe, the varroa mite. It's in the management of this reddish-brown parasite where Bell diverges most from his fellow beekeepers. Quote, When I decided to get into beekeeping, I went online and everything was about chemicals, and the bees wouldn't survive unless you use chemicals to treat for mites, Bell says. And I was like, well, there's no chemicals applied to wild bees, and they're there year after year, unquote. That's when Bell decided to become a, quote, bee guardian, unquote. During the first day of class in April, he made his goal clear, quote, I'm not here to teach you how to harvest a lot of honey. I'm here to teach you how to take care of bees, unquote. Bell's Methods Corwin Bell grew up in El Dorado Canyon. He still keeps bees at his childhood home today, about 10 top bar hives of varying sizes, humming under the heavy shadow of a grove of poplars. Quote, I started in the forest down here. There were always wild bees, unquote. Bell tells me as he cracks open a cathedral hive, a larger size top bar design of his creation. Quote, and so, as a little kid, I would go up and climb the trees and watch them, unquote. In addition to the hives before us, Bell also keeps hives in Crestone and for other individuals and organizations around the area. He got interested in top bar hives through a pamphlet from Colorado beekeeper Marty Hardison, who was a proponent of the less conventional me method. Bell sees the top bar as a more, quote, natural, unquote, option for beekeeping, both in form and function, and he and other practitioners typically claim it offers, quote, unlimited, unquote, brood nesting, space for egg laying, easier accessibility for the beekeeper, and no plastic or wax foundations that can hold on to pesticides. He ultimately views the top bar design as a better mimic of what bees would use in a natural setting. During our class in April, Bell openly discussed being the black sheep of the Boulder County beekeepers for eschewing chemical miticide treatments. Instead, Bell cuts out mite-infected drone brood comb. Excuse me. 
mite-infected drone-brewed comb, identifiable by domed caps. Varroa have a proclivity to reproduce in these male bee cells, and the cap confines them. Cutting the brood before drones hatch removes mites as well. Bell has to check and cut brood comb often. His goal is to breed hives that develop genetic resistance to Varroa, which is a goal shared by commercial queen rearers, though those operations still use chemical management. All of Bell's hives are colonized by feral swarms he's captured. Quote, Other beekeepers tell me your hives will die if you don't treat them. Well, you can see they're not dying, unquote, Bell says, motioning across his collection of working hives. Some of which, he says, have survived over a handful of years. Quote, what I'm having the biggest trouble with is dropping temperatures, unquote, in the winter. Tim Broad, owner of Highland Honey in Longmont and a commercial queen rearer who treats for Varroa, doesn't buy it. Quote, you can go and scratch open some drone brood and get an indication of your infestation, he says. But it's a little bit like looking at a satellite of one area of I-25 and saying, oh, there's no traffic in Denver. You only looked at Thornton, unquote. Broad keeps bees at a much larger scale than Bell, managing an estimated 400 hives. He's got no problem with backyard hobbyists keeping top bar hives as long as they treat for mites. But he's unapologetic in his dismissal of any notion that the top bar design is a more natural form of beekeeping. Quote, People are unaware of the amount of time and attention it takes to keep bees alive, Broad says. Whether it's a top bar hive, Langstroth, hexagonal, Soviet block era chunk of ice, or a Navy sea locker, the shape of the hive is just a distraction from the amount of time and energy that it takes. If we have different hives, it might take a little bit more attention with Hive X, it might be more challenging to work with HiveX, but that's okay. You just have to know that it takes a little more time to work that hive. But if you make up a story that a hive is way more natural, you're really screwing the pooch. You're making a fantasy that I think is really a disservice to yourself, your neighbors, to the bees, as an environmentalist." Unquote. Ramsey says that non-treatment beekeepers are, quote, almost always small scale, quote, unquote. It's just not feasible in the commercial arena. Quote, you would lose 80-something percent of your stock of bees and all of your money, unquote, he says. Honeybees contribute approximately $18 billion per year to the U.S. economy, according to Ramsey, though pollination of major crops like apples, melons, pumpkins, and the biggest of them all, almonds. Large-scale beekeepers ship their bees thousands of miles, in some cases, to pollinate crops across multiple states through various seasons. It's how most professional beekeepers make their money, and at least part of the reason why non-treatment is such a non-starter in the commercial beekeeping space. Without bees, our food system looks totally different. The Red-Headed Stepchild Beth Conry is the owner of B-Squared Apiaries in Berthet, 
where she oversees around 150 hives. Like Broad and Bell, Conry teaches classes. Like Broad, she disagrees with non-chemical methods of mitigating Varroa. Quote, I will use a certified organic miticide because that's a better balance for me, unquote, she says, as we overlook her property butted up against the Little Thompson River. Quote, no chemical treatment is great as long as you have nonstop funds to continue to buy bees because they're dying, not just from Varroa, but from a whole host of other things. We are not going to genetically breed mite-resistant bees in the field in the time needed to do it. I admire people who try to do that, but I think they're fools as well." Unquote. She sees organic pesticides as a, quote, transition, unquote, and actually agrees with Bell that the true answer, quote, the long-term strategy is breeding, unquote. Quote, it's actually fixing all the disasters we've created that have made this thing so very violent, unquote, she says. Conry calls beekeeping, quote, the red-headed stepchild of agriculture, unquote, a small but necessary block of 120,000 apiarists at the mercy of industrialized crop farmers who are allowed by the U.S. Department of Agriculture to spray their fields with neonic neonicotinoids, which are known to kill colonies. The late Boulder-based beekeeper Tom Theobald's Niwad Honey Farm was part of the lawsuit against the Environmental Protection Agency that led to neonics being taken off the market for non-commercial gardeners. Quote, there are these chemicals that are known contributors to bee death, and why are we exempting agriculture from this discussion on it? Conry asks, unquote, there's no federal mandate for industrialized farmers to warn nearby beekeepers when they are spraying. There are only voluntary lists like Field Watch. She, Broad, and Bell have all lost colonies to drifting neonicotinoid pesticide sprays. Ramsey, who worked for the USDA's Bee Research Lab in Beltsville, Maryland, doesn't deny there's an issue with neonics, but he says the real problem is monoculture, which is much larger, deeper, and higher, harder to fix. Quote, Any perturbation can destroy the entirety of the system. A new insect that has simply evolved a new way of attacking a crop can kill all the crops. It's happened to us multiple times. It's happening now with bananas, he says. Because we have this system of monoculture crops, we are incredibly reliant on pesticides, and if we banned neonics, we'd be back to another harmful chemical when what we need to do is reform the system itself and develop a better way of farming so that we are not just on this constant treadmill and never getting anywhere, unquote. Beekeepers have to take a tip from corporate America, Ramsey says, band together and lobby Congress for change. Quote, we have a tendency in the U.S. to talk about how much we have, about how we have such an amazing system that is free of corruption. But what we have created was a system where corruption is legal. So you have people paying politicians to do specific things that in other countries would be considered a bribe or problematic. And for us, we call it lobbying. The more money you have, the more your policy concerns are more heavily weighted in the system. 
If beekeepers are not joining together as a lobbying force, oftentimes their concerns don't make it into policy. And that is something that we have to figure out how to manage. Are we going to come together as a block and start moving things forward? Or are we going to reform the system and take money out of politics? Unquote. Curious economics. The problem is there's no money in beekeeping, Broad says. We have, quote, we have curious economics in the United States where the only way large beekeepers can stay alive is by being in bed with big ag to do the almond pollination, unquote. Broad estimates he stopped running his colonies out to California 15 years ago. The return on investment is meager if you don't own everything you need, like tractor trailers and the possibility of disease increases. Conry's smaller operation has never transported bees for large pollination events, but she would like to work with local orchards. Quote, urban beekeeping is a double-edged sword, Conry says, because it's a really steep learning curve to get to be a good beekeeper. Most people survive two to three years out of it. It's expensive, it's time-consuming, it's incredibly ungratifying to kill bees, even if it's not really your fault, and it's really hard to stomach that all the time." Unquote. Every beekeeper, differing methods aside, has a reverence for this collection of insects that work as a single entity. The honeybee is endearing to people, perhaps because it does what we cannot, it acts for the greater good each and every time. Quote, if we can collectively act like our colonies, our life would be much better. But we don't, Conry says, and we're not going to start anytime soon. What's that saying? If you're not invited to dinner, you're what's for dinner. That's where the bees are. They are what Big Ag is eating for dinner, unquote. Entertainment, stage, inflection point. New leadership team at Butterfly Effect Theater of Colorado invites audiences to dwell in possibility with the company's 18th season by Tony Tresca, August 10, 2023. <clears throat> Change was in the air during the Colorado Theater Guild's annual awards ceremony last month. The 17th annual Henry Awards, presented by the organization since 2006 to recognize local achievements on stage, also served as a moving farewell to Rebecca Romali and Stephen Weitz, co-founders of the Boulder-based Butterfly Effect Theater of Colorado. The husband and wife team, who earlier this year handed the reins to Jessica Robley and Mark Reagan after running the theater for nearly two decades, left on a high note. Last fall's BETC production of The Royale, based on the true story of Jack Johnson, the first black heavyweight world championship champion, took home a record-breaking nine Henry Awards, a stark reminder of the big shoes left to fill. Quote, Stephen said to us, good luck, it's your baby now. And I was like, gulp, unquote, says Robbie, Robley, BETC's new producing artistic director, who admits she feels pressure to carry on Romali and White's legacy. Quote, 
It is an honor and a privilege to continue BETC, and I am thrilled that Stephen and Rebecca were honored at the Henry Awards, unquote. But BETC supporters have even more reason to celebrate at this year's ceremony. Rob Lee won the 2023 Henry Award for Lead Actress in a Play for her performance in The Bell of Amherst by William Luce, which aims to shed new light on the poet Emily Dickinson. The play was produced by Clover and Bee Productions, a theater company founded by Rob Lee and Reagan that has been folded into BETC. As part of the company's upcoming 2023-24 season, themed around the Dickinson quote, I dwell in possibility, the Bell of Amherst will be restaged in a five-show run at the Dairy Arts Center from November 22 through 26. Quote, since it's a transition year for us, we kind of wanted to use a few shortcuts to help us learn the ropes this year, Robley says. Bringing a short stint of the Bell of Amherst to the Dairy Thanksgiving weekend made logistical sense and allowed us to fulfill this promise we made while performing at Buntport Theater to take the show to Boulder, unquote. BETC will also be touring the production at Millibo Art Theater in Colorado Springs from November 2 through 12 as part of its efforts to expand the company's reach. Quote, Mark and I are excited about fostering connections across Colorado, Robley says. We have numerous opportunities for cross-pollination across the state's artistic community throughout our season, unquote. In addition to expanding its reach geographically, BETC will also present a diverse set of offerings during its upcoming 18th season. Production will include mainstage productions at venues like the Dairy and the Savoy Denver, along with a play reading series, Café Au Play, hosted by BETC veteran Dr. Heather Beasley and two new improv comedy shows, King Penny Golden Radio Hour, and Mad Librarians, as in Mad Libs. Quote, I think we've really hit an inflection point, unquote, says Reagan, BETC's new managing director. Ticket sales are surprisingly booming right now, so I am looking forward to seeing if our first season takes off. We have a good lineup of shows, and our subscription sales are currently ahead of last season. Unquote. Raising the Curtain BETC's upcoming season kicks off October 26 with the Colorado premiere of Coal Country, a gripping story built from interviews with the survivors of a mine explosion in West Virginia, written by Eric Jensen and Jessica Blank, and woven with the music of Steve Earle. Quote, it's the first time it's being done outside New York City, and we have an amazing cast, Reagan says. No one play completely defines us, but Cold Country will define our taste, unquote. In keeping with the company's emphasis on new work, BETC will present the world premiere of Holly, Alaska for its holiday show in December. The play by Matt Zambrano follows a humble and hilarious group of locals who band together to ensure that the town holiday pageant continues. Quote, 
We wanted to bring something sunny and festive to the holiday season that the whole family could enjoy, Robley says. Expect an all-ages play with a somewhat Pixar sensibility. Holly, Alaska is sharp enough for adults to enjoy themselves while remaining playful and enjoyable for kids, unquote. The final main stage play in BETC's 18th season, What the Constitution Means to Me, is a comedic look at how the founding document of the United States has influenced the lives of four generations of women in the family of playwright Heidi Schreck. Quote, I was fortunate enough to do What the Constitution Means to Me in Jackson, Wyoming, for just two weekends this spring, unquote. Rob Lee says of the show running early next year at the Savoy Denver and later that spring at the Dairy in Boulder. Quote, it's such an exciting and important play that is incredibly smart and funny. Mark and I wanted this play to have a longer life and bring it to our area. Because it's such a notable script, we think both Denver and Boulder will be interested in the show, unquote. With this slate of performances, the new BETC leadership team hopes to continue Ramali and White's mission of producing, quote, powerful, engaging, top-quality performances, unquote, that reverberate both on and off the stage. Quote, BETC has created strong production and such a supportive community, Robley says. We're honored to continue working to do the very same, unquote. On stage, BETC 2023-24 season, October 26, 2023, through May 19, 2024. Tickets are at betc.org slash ticketing. Entertainment. Screen. This is Us. Boulder's Mimesis Documentary Festival offers revelation with a dash of hope by Michael J. Casey. August 10, 2023. What is the story of us? That's a question many movies try to answer, sometimes with the us meaning you and me, sometimes with the us meaning everyone. Few ever get there, but it's still a question worth asking, whether the answer is comforting or conclusive. And for the movies playing the Mimesis Documentary Festival, August 15 through 20 at the Dairy Arts Center, and CU Boulder's B2 Center, the answers certainly feel conclusive, even if they're not always comforting. For the fourth summer in a row, Mimesis returns to Boulder with screenings, workshops, and visiting artists. It's a festival you don't want to miss, even if you've never ventured into the foray of nonfiction filmmaking. Here, the palette is diverse and the canvas is broad. Stories are personal and technique rises to the top. Jessica Bashir, a Mexican-Ethiopian filmmaker, is Mimesis's 2023 Artist in Focus. She will be in attendance for a conversation on August 19 about her debut feature, Faya Dayi, a hallucinatory black-and-white dream playing a day earlier at the Boudicca Theater. In addition to Bashir, the festival will feature an off-site, quote, spatial performance lecture, unquote, by Saeed Taji Faruqi. Thirteen documentary blocks grouped by a common theme and discussions galore. Pick anything from the program and you'll be in for a treat. 
but you've got to make time for the Thin Strips block, August 19. Five shorts looking at our built environment, how it erases our history and shapes our future through eminent domain of every kind. A town is burned to the ground to make way for a dam in the fall of Cannonsville. Another is raised for a planned community, brutal utopia. Vast plains become a never-ending street of commerce, 13th Avenue Fargo Minecart. An experimental university is remembered, growing up absurd, and a team of gravediggers helps a family move remains from a cemetery soon to be turned into a park, Section 59. Of that bunch, Section 59 feels the most personal. It should. The remains dug up are that of director Yasaman Bagban's father. Talk about first-person cinema. Brutal Utopia has more remove. It's constructed primarily by archival footage and narration, but it tells the story of America so succinctly that your allegiances are bound to shift at least twice while watching it. Then there's The Fall of Cannonsville, a modern-day doc working in tandem with another, 1960s Indian Summer, August 17 through 20. The connective tissue between the two is Charles Cadkin, the director of the former and the restoration director of the latter. Sixty years separate the two, yet both feel prescient. If you think the government has overreached now, wait until you see these. But documentary filmmaking needn't always wallow in the misdeeds of the past. For those seeking hope and a beautiful future, make time for the Speaking in Tongues block, August 19th. Specifically, Emily Packer's Holding Back the Tide, a treatise on how oysters might save us environmentally and socially. If you were one of the millions who saw fantastic fungi, and learn to embrace the almighty mushroom, then here is your chance to fall under the spell of an other optimistic sustenance. On screen, Mimesis Documentary Festival, various times, August 15 through 20, multiple venues. Tickets and schedules at mimesis, dot, that's M-I-M-E-S-I-S, dot eventive dot org. Cuisine, nibbles, barbecue meets basmati. DJ's watering hole pleases with paneer-stuffed po'boys and tikka burgers in globe-spanning flavor mashups by John Lendorf, August 10, 2023. DJ's watering hole has flown under the radar since opening in November. Its location at 988 Dillon Road, near US 36, almost invisible from McCaslin Boulevard. If you can find the restaurant, you're greeted by wafts of meaty, spicy wood aroma. The renovated former Outback Steakhouse, with its big bar and large screens, makes DJ's Watering Hole feel like a classic beer-focused sports bar that serves barbecue. But as they dig into the large menu, diners learn there's more to this establishment than meets the eye. Award-winning southern barbecue and sides are served alongside well-crafted tandoori oven cooked Indian classics. Both cuisines are prepared traditionally, but the real magic happens in dishes that bring them together. On the masala combo plate, deeply smoked brisket and pulled pork rise to new heights, 
topped with a complexly spiced Indian sauce and served over fluffy floral basmati rice. Hot from the tandoor, naan is perfect for grabbing bites of collard greens and baked beans. We've encountered plenty of good and bad attempts at fusion food. This barbecue meets basmati mashup may seem worlds apart, but one taste and you realize these flavors are absolutely made for each other. Scratch made everything. DJ's watering hole resulted from a long-standing friendship between two local families. The name represents the first initials of the three owners, Daryl Johnson and cousins Jatin and Shivang Patel. Jatin Patel opened Boulder's Tiffin India Cafe in 2011, specializing in dosas and other South Indian dishes. He sold the restaurant in 2018. Quote, I wanted to have another restaurant, but not the same menu as before, Patel says. Daryl wanted to serve his family's barbecue. We both love playing with flavors and spices, so we brought barbecue and Indian together, quote, unquote, which works, he says, because the cooking methods, charcoal in the tandoor and hardwood in a smoker, yield similar flavors. Indian cuisine wasn't, quote, a huge thing, unquote, in the African-American community Johnson grew up in. Johnson and his son, Hank, co-own Longmont-based Rats Woodshack Barbecue, serving award-winning meats as a catering business and food truck. You'll see Woodshack barbecue sauces on the tables at DJ's. Quote, My family is old school, Johnson says, but I wanted to do something new. People have never tasted barbecue flavors with Indian flavors. Unquote. As a result, the menu at DJ's Watering Hole offers fried chicken and Pani Puri chicken kebabs, as well as chicken wings smothered in spicy barbecue sauce or mango chutney. Among the best sellers are tandoori lamb kebabs with peppers served with fiery vindaloo sauce and cool yogurt reta. The kitchen focuses on scratch-made everything, from masala to cornbread to Mama Nina Johnson's pies, Patel says. As co-proprietor of a place that dishes big platters of tender barbecue spare ribs, Patel says he's especially focused on offering vegetarian and vegan options, including fried cauliflower wings, a paneer cheese-stuffed po'boy, and a paneer tikka burger. A matter of time. If you're not paying attention, you might miss a series of small but lush garden spaces surrounding the restaurant's sprawling outdoor dining area. Quote, I grew up on a farm in India, Patel says. Everything we ate was grown or foraged, so I learned a lot. Unquote. He happily takes diners on a tour, pointing out okra, purslane, or little hogweed, coriander, mint, lamb's quarters, peppers, nasturtium, and mustard greens, plus herbs and flowers typically found in India. Patel is knowledgeable about the nutritional and Ayurvedic qualities of everything he grows. Quote, My dream is to eventually add a greenhouse to grow more food for the restaurant, unquote, he says. As his garden grows, Patel expects to use his crops in dishes of both fairs on DJ's menu. Okra, for instance, holds a special place in both Indian and African-American kitchens. 
Johnson has plans to introduce non-flatbreads stuffed with beef brisket and combo platters to feed big parties. Quote, We're planning on offering Indian ribs and fried chicken spiced with cumin, coriander, and chilies, unquote, Patel adds. Both owners agree it's just a matter of time before their inspired mashup goes viral. Local food news, immersive mint. The aromatic mint room is back. On August 12, after a three years hiatus, Boulder's Celestial Seasonings Tours will begin again with a stop at the tea shop, some sampling sips, and a nose-tingling visit to the mint storage room. Tickets to the formerly free tour are now $5 at the door. The only non-pink Voodoo Donuts in the Oregon-based chain is open at 3210 Arapahoe Road in Boulder. Masas and Agave is open and dishing up Oaxacan cuisine at 909 Walnut Street in Boulder, former site of Supermoon and Arcana restaurants. New brewery news. Rocks and Hops Brewing is open at 2516 49th Street, Boulder, and Bearded Brewer Artisan Ales is pouring at 1425 South Airport Road in Longmont. Chiba Hut and Skinny Fats will fill the former Lazy Dog Bar and Grill location at 1346 Pearl Street. Spirit Hound Distillers will add a Denver tasting room at 3622 Tejon Street. Production of the award-winning spirits will remain in Lyons. Coming soon to Boulder, Boxcar Coffee Roasters at Table Mesa Shopping Center and L&L Hawaiian Barbecue at 2323 30th Street. Culinary Calendar, Zolo Redux. The Boulder Blind Cafe Experience, August 18 to 20, at the Dairy Arts Center, features a meal, discussions, and performances in darkness, no blindfolds. Visit theblindcafe.com slash boulder for more information. Enjoy the famous chicken enchiladas and duck tacos from Boulder's late beloved Zolo Southwestern Grill one more time at a benefit event August 18 at the Velvet Elk Lounge. Tickets are $78. Visit bit.ly slash Zolo Love for more information. Words to chew on, summer dining, quote, Newspapers draped over picnic tables, boiled crawfish, corn and potatoes piled in the center. We are community eaters. We talk with our hands. We eat with our hands. We talk while we eat, unquote, says Bailey Jones. Thank you for joining us for the Boulder Weekly. My name is Eric Levine. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aincolorado.org or by calling 303-786-7777.